the day you were hired, the day you got pregnant, the day you met your spouse, how about the day your parent died? These were all landmark days in your life, days that made a difference. But they probably started out like any other day. It appeared to be a common, ordinary day. At breakfast that morning, you had no idea that something would happen that would change your life forever. Well, likewise, the disciples, they crawled out of bed on that first Easter Sunday, and they had no idea that they were just minutes away from a miracle. It seemed like an ordinary day, no doubt. They never dreamed it would be the day that not only altered their own lives, but turned the course of human history. Jesus would conquer death this day, and he would live to give life to those who ask. You know, after that first Easter, in a sense, nothing had changed. Rome still occupied Palestine. Religious authorities still had a bounty on the heads of the disciples. Sin, death, and evil still ruled the world. Yet in another sense, after that first Easter, everything changed. A new stream had begun to flow that would cut an enormous channel and eventually catch billions of hearts in its undertow. Well, Luke chapter 23 closes at sundown. Jesus is crucified. God is dead. The world is a hopeless place. But Luke chapter 24 opens just before sunrise. Jesus is risen. God has conquered death, and the world will never be the same. Well, verse 1, Luke chapter 24 begins. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. The they were the women who had attended the crucifixion and had escorted the body of Jesus to the tomb. These women, remember, had gone home in time for the Sabbath in order to prepare the spices that would complete the burial. And it can't be underestimated how bleak the situation looked. Jesus had breathed his last. They were there. There was no more pulse. The Savior was stiff. In addition, Judas, a trusted disciple, was now a betrayer. The chief priests and Pilate were murderers. The disciples were cowards. It was a sad, sad scene. You know, if anyone had remained faithful, it was these women. They had stayed to the very end with Joseph of Arimathea. They knew exactly where Jesus had been buried. It's fitting that the last to leave the cross were the first to arrive at the tomb. God intended to bless their faithfulness. Those who are willing to experience the sufferings of Christ are usually the first to experience his resurrection power. That's what we find here. But when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Keep in mind, this was a heavy stone. Mark 16 verse 3 tells us that the women were talking among themselves en route to the tomb, and they said, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They knew they couldn't move it themselves. This stone may have weighed up to two tons. But when they arrive on the scene, the stone had been rolled away. John's gospel says that the stone was, quote, taken away. It's the translation of the Greek word arrow 
from which we get our word air. In other words, the stone caught air. The word literally means to pick up and carry away. Apparently, this two-ton stone was blown off the entrance of the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. The force of the resurrection was so powerful, the stone popped off the mouth of the tomb like a cork out of a champagne bottle. This two-ton stone caught air. And keep in mind, the stone was not removed to let Jesus out. You know, we know his resurrection body wasn't subject to the laws of nature. He had the capability to walk through walls. He appeared, then disappeared. No, the stone on the mouth of the grave was removed, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to let the world in, in order to see that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen. Verse 3, then they went in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. You know, these are the words written on the doors of the garden tomb there in Jerusalem. He is not here, but is risen. You know, there are famous tombs scattered all over the world. Hadrian's tomb in Rome, Lenin's tomb in Red Square, the Taj Mahal in India, Westminster Abbey in downtown London, the Pharaoh's tomb, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C., but did you know the world's most famous tomb, the garden tomb, is an empty one? I'll never forget my first visit to the garden tomb. It was such a moving experience to be in the exact spot where they had laid the body of our Lord. And I took advantage of the opportunity, trust me. I went in and went out. I went back and forth in that tomb two or three times. I looked the place over. I gave it a thorough inspection, and guess what? It's completely empty. There's not a corpse to be found. The most famous tomb in the world is an empty tomb, for Jesus has risen. You know, but an empty grave was not all that I noticed there at the garden tomb in Jerusalem. As I walked away from the tomb, I looked up, and on top of the walls surrounding the compound, there's this big fence, sort of rolls of barbed wire across the top of the wall. You can see some sharp glass shards embedded into the top of the wall, sort of cemented in. It's a sign, obviously, of tension and conflict and war in the area. And it hit me. Folks who live near this tomb are certainly familiar with the facts. I mean, they most probably believe in the resurrection. They live right next door to the proof. They know Christ is risen, but they've never experienced the risen Christ. Thus the war and the conflict and the friction in the area. I wonder how many of us here tonight, though, are in the same boat. We believe Jesus is alive, but have we met him? Are we aware of his presence in our lives? Notice again the question that the angel asked the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, why look in a graveyard for a man who's alive? That's a crazy place to look for a living guy. Why are you treating a living, human, breathing person as if he's dead? 
And yet there are churches that are guilty of this every single Sunday. I've been to some church services that were more a memorial to a dead man than they were an experience with a man who's alive and well. Imagine visiting Lincoln's memorial on February the 12th. Old Honest Abe, it's his birthday. You go there, you find a large crowd out in front of the memorial. A service is in progress. Someone gets up and he reads excerpts from some of Lincoln's writings, the Emancipation Proclamation or the Gettysburg Address. Speakers then pull out points and they make application to today. Equality for all men, perhaps the importance of our national unity. Then someone else remembers some of the works of Lincoln and they praise his accomplishments, how he freed the slaves and how he preserved the nation. Then we're all encouraged to follow his great example. Let's be honest, like old honest Abe. Let's be courageous, even in the face of difficulty. But you know, if you were there that day, there's one thing that you would never ask me to do. It would be ludicrous. No one would ever stand up and invite the people in the crowd to come forward and meet President Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Abraham Lincoln. Nah, that's not going to happen. In fact, if that occurred, you'd be running for the exits, man. And yet a lot of church services are no different. We read the words of Jesus. We apply his teachings to our lives. We recall his past accomplishments and his miracles, and we're inspired by his example. But that's where we stop. For no one takes seriously that we can sense and know And walk with this risen Lord. Our worship is more a eulogy when it should be an encounter. The message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is alive and that we can know him. You know, you don't go to a graveyard looking for Jesus. He can be experienced in real life, on the job, at the park, in your home, Later, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that when he ascends to heaven, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's not just sing songs about him. Let's sing songs to him. Let's not just make our prayers a monologue. Let's expect a dialogue. Let's follow a person, a living person, not a stoic example. And let's not just work for the Lord. Hey, we can work with the Lord. How much better is that? You and I, living in the 21st century, can enjoy a relationship with a man who actually lived in the first century. The carpenter from Nazareth is alive and well. Well, the angel continues. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. At the time, it sailed over their heads. But now it finally clicks. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. How sad. The disciples sort of wrote it all off as women with wild hysteria. Hysterical women is what they thought. 
You know, sadly, Jews in the first century didn't really consider women reliable witnesses. In a Jewish court, a woman's testimony wasn't even an admissible evidence. Sounds like these disciples kind of had that same attitude. But verse 12, Peter arose and he ran to the tomb. You get the impression that Peter was looking for just any inkling of hope. He, he wanted to know. He kind of believed the women, I, I suppose. He ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I'm sure Peter wanted to believe. You remember Peter had failed his Lord, terribly so. He denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. He thought it was over for him. But could it be? Could it be true that Jesus was alive? (laughs) What would it be like to see Jesus again? What would that be like for Peter? Well, Sunday morning had begun with a startling surprise. Now, behold, two of them, two disciples, that is, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Emmaus is northwest of Jerusalem. Today, there's a freeway that links the city of Jerusalem uh, with Tel Aviv, and along that freeway is the Emmaus exit. In Jesus' day, though, Emmaus was at the end of a rocky, dusty road. Emmaus would be about a three-hour walk from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Oh, there was much to talk about. These two disciples had probably been with Jesus for most of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. With each miracle, their hearts had been fueled with more excitement. Each teaching had produced a new reverence for his wisdom. Each day they had fallen deeper in love with Jesus. These disciples had been sure that Jesus was more than a mere man. They were confident he was the Messiah. Their imaginations had run wild with visions of his future kingdom. They never dreamed it would end this way. Now, though, their hopes are sacked. They were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. They saw the ugly, brutal death of Jesus. These two disciples are now wandering home, confused and disillusioned. They're probably in a state of shock. All they know for sure is that it's over. It's finally over. They're returning to the hopeless lives they'd known before, back to Emmaus. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now, there were probably multiple reasons why they didn't recognize Jesus. We know that Jesus bore his scars. He will later show Thomas his hands and his side. Perhaps facial scars also obscured his recognition. Remember, he had been beaten beyond recognition. We talked about how even his beard had been pulled out. I'm sure their failure to recognize Jesus, though, may also have had something to do with a little supernatural screening. I think God threw a veil over the eyes of these two disciples until they had fulfilled a prerequisite. For to meet the risen Christ, you have to be ready. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, 
what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there these days? Man, where have you been? Haven't you read the Jerusalem Post? I mean, haven't you been watching Fox News? 60 Minutes did an expose last night. Come on, man, where you been? And Jesus, playing coy here, said to them, what things? <laughs> and so they said to him, and you get the impression that Jesus is having a little fun with them here, you think. And so they said to him, these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And notice the saddest word in this statement, Jesus who was a prophet. Notice Jesus is now in their past tense. They believed once, but apparently no longer. You see, this had all been so confusing for them. They'd been forced into an intellectual quandary. If Jesus was a man, mighty in word and deed, how did he get trapped by the Romans? If he was a prophet of God, why did God allow him to be crucified? None of this made sense. And you know, for some of us tonight, we're in a similar boat. We're also confused by our circumstances. If God really loves me, why has this happened? If I'm really a child of God, why am I going through this? We've got our own questions tonight. As one historian said of Christopher Columbus, when he departed, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And when he returned, he didn't know where he had been. <laughs> well, that's how these two men on the road to Emmaus felt. Perhaps that describes you tonight. Verse 21 is sadder still. They say, but we were hoping that he was, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Again, they say, we were hoping that he would redeem Israel. Apparently, their hope had died. You see, not only were they intellectually confused, but they were emotionally crushed. They had hoped in Jesus, and Jesus had let them down. They took it personally. All the disciples had staked their future on Jesus. They had left all to follow him. And he had given in without a fight. Why didn't he at least work a miracle and try to escape? Didn't he know that people were depending on him, trusting in him? They felt disappointed by Jesus. They continue, indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Notice their conclusion of futility. It's as if they're saying, we heard these wild reports this morning but we're still skeptical. How can you believe the hallucinations of hyper-emotional women? You see, the flame of faith had been extinguished from the hearts 
of these disciples. Understand, these two men, they were three things. They were intellectually confused. They were emotionally crushed. And they were spiritually conquered. They no longer held out hope for a miracle. These two disciples had lost touch with spiritual realities. Life with Jesus had made them believe in a higher plane of existence. But how quickly their short flirtation with heaven had come to an end. How it had been shattered by the bitter realities of a harsh, cruel, brutal crucifixion. Let me suggest to you tonight that the road to Emmaus not only runs the seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, but at some point it cuts through every single human heart. There are times when we're confused intellectually. We don't understand what God is doing in our lives, God's purposes for us. At other times, we're crushed emotionally. We feel forsaken. We feel like God has let us down. There are still other times when we're conquered spiritually. Hope is gone. We're too tired, too weary to even believe. We thought God loved us, but now we're not sure. You see, the road to Emmaus is a lonely stretch of highway. It winds and winds and seems to go nowhere. And here's the ironic twist. On the road to Emmaus, the answer you're looking for is right by your side. For Jesus is with us. Tonight, you may be on the road to Emmaus, but the answer to all of your problems, all of your intellectual confusion and emotional disappointment and your spiritual ineptitude, all of it, the answer to it all is right by your side even as we speak. Jesus is with us. And Jesus is faithful to join us on that road. Our problem, though, is that we're blind to his presence. The explanation for their confusion, the balm for their hurts, the flame that would reignite their faith, all they desperately needed was within arm's reach. Jesus was with these two discouraged disciples, but they didn't realize it. Verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now, Jesus reveals while their eyes were closed. They were slow of heart to believe. Understand, God wants to open your eyes to the risen Christ. But there's one prerequisite. You have to believe. Faith is the key, but there's more. We have to believe with our hearts. Jesus said, you've been slow of heart to believe. You see, some folks believe intellectually. Oh, yes, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, they believe that he's alive. They believe intellectually, but they've never acted on their faith. You see, when you believe with your heart, desire and commitment and passion kick in. We're suddenly willing to meet the Lord on His terms. We're willing to act on what He said. We're willing to trust Him in real life. We're willing to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to step out. I'm going to live my life for you on your terms, not just on my own. And that's when God opens our eyes. 
That's when he takes off the blindfold and removes the scales and suddenly Christ is revealed to you. You sense his presence. You know his power and you are never the same. It's been said, man's knowledge must be understood to be loved. But God's knowledge must be loved to be understood. It's when you love Jesus. That's when he reveals himself and his wisdom and his power and his purposes to you. Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught him a Bible study. What a Bible study. <laughs> if only they had had recording equipment. If only we could get our hands and listen to this CD. <laughs> wow, that would be a pretty hot, hot item. A CD of Jesus talking about how the scriptures had spoken of him. Jesus apparently takes them through the Bible, beginning at Moses and going all the way through the prophets. He expounded how the scriptures spoke of him. He goes through the Bible. He holds the first TBG group right here with these two disciples. Incredible. Jesus starts in Genesis and he teaches these disciples how the Old Testament speaks of him on every page. And then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Jesus is a man after my own heart. He never turned down an invitation to dinner. You know, Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that Jesus wants to eat dinner with each of us. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus stands at your door tonight knocking, wanting you to open up your heart to him, waiting on you to open up so that he can have fellowship with you. There was once a billboard back before Hurricane Katrina. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. But there was a billboard in Louisiana. It was on Interstate 10. As you were coming out of Louisiana, just before you crossed over the Mississippi River Bridge, and it was a picture of Jesus. He was hanging on the cross. His head was bowed, and the caption read, It's your move, and it is your move. You see, after the cross, the ball's now in our court. Jesus has done the work. He's paid for our sin. He's paid for our penalty. He's paid the price for our sin. And he's risen from the dead so that he can give us new life. But now it's up to us. He stands at the door and knocks. It's open, up to us now to open up our hearts. Verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. What was it that finally sparked their faith? Was it something about the way he handled the bread? Maybe the way he took the bread was the same way he did it when he multiplied the five loaves, fed the multitude. Here's my theory. I believe that when he took the bread with his hands, they saw his scars. They saw the scars in his hands, and they knew. They believed, 
and it was revealed, he was revealed to them. Philip Yancey writes, Jesus can always prove his identity. No other living person bears the scars of crucifixion. Sets him apart. When they saw his scars, it was undeniable. I think it was his scars that ignited their faith and in turn opened their eyes. But always remember the succession. The eyes aren't opened until the heart believes, and that's always the order. It never happens in reverse. You know, people today want God to open their eyes. Then they'll believe. But it doesn't work that way. You believe, and then God opens your eyes. Jesus was speaking of you and me when he told Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Did not our hearts burn? This is a good kind of heartburn, by the way. Their passion had been reignited. They were stirred and moved. Hope had been rekindled. Faith had been refueled. They realized now his identity. This was Jesus. How exciting it was. And when did it happen? When were their eyes open? When Jesus opened the scriptures. Notice, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Isn't that interesting? Their faith was rekindled when they opened up the scriptures and read the scriptures. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When a discouraged and defeated John Wesley stumbled into the church there in Aldersgate Street in London, he sat down and he listened to the reading of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. The message of justification by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone captured Wesley's imagination and stirred his heart. He wrote later of his experience, My heart was strangely warmed. That's what the disciples said when Jesus opened to them the Scriptures. Did not our hearts burn within us? Hey, the stirrings of revival are not the result of all-night prayer meetings, although prayer plays a part. They're not the result of a unified church, though certainly the church needs to come together. A burning heart is not the result of praise and worship, though surely we need to worship God. No, a burning heart, a heart on fire for Jesus, a lasting passion for our Lord occurs when the Scriptures are open and when Jesus is preached. Revival comes when, like these two disciples, we get back to the drawing board and reopen the book and seek Jesus on every page. You'll burn with a love for the living word, Jesus, when you fill your heart with the written word, the Bible. And so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, Emmaus to Jerusalem is an uphill climb. And that these disciples found the energy to return that day is proof of the excitement that filled their hearts. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And, and then they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Imagine them standing there and swapping stories. These two disciples and Peter, overjoyed. 
sharing their experiences with the risen Christ. And now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. They don't even get to finish their stories when Jesus pops in. He just appears suddenly. And this was quite a greeting he gives them. Especially after you consider the last time Jesus saw these guys. He was watching their backsides as they were dodging trees and running through the Garden of Gethsemane to get away from the Romans and from the Jewish, you know, posse that had arrested Jesus. Don't you know, in one sense, these disciples were dreading this meeting? They're not quite sure what to expect from Jesus. Is he going to bring judgment? Is he going to chastise them? Is he going to discipline them? Instead, Jesus puts them at ease. Notice his words. Peace to you. I harbor no grudge. I extend my forgiveness. Peace to you, my friends. It's all about grace. Here's what you should never forget. A risen Christ means a second chance. And that's still true today. Verse 37, but they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. They thought Jesus was a ghost or a phantom or some apparition. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Again, it was the scars. Jesus was no longer flesh and blood. Understand that. Why? Because his blood had been spilt for us. But he was still flesh and bone. His body had changed, been transformed. But it was the same body. And for proof, he showed them his scars those undeniable scars. And and it's always a provocative thought to remember that even as Jesus exists and lives today, he still has those scars. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, John sees a scroll. And he says, who's worthy to open this scroll and to loose these seals? And, and someone says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And John spins and he looks at this lion and he sees Jesus, but he says he appears as a lamb. I believe Jesus still bears those scars in his body. I believe that when we see him, when we get to heaven, we'll see those scars. That after we've spent the first forever of infinite eternities, he'll still have those scars. It's been said the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on our Savior. Two things will happen to me when I see those scars. First of all, I'll realize, oh my, what I did to deserve that. I'll realize the depth of my sin. But then I'll also realize the extent of his love. What he was willing to go through to forgive me. Jesus could walk through walls in his resurrection body. He was no longer limited by time and space. 
In the words of Paul to the Corinthians, his corruptible body had put on incorruption. His mortal body had put on immortality. The body that was resurrected was the body that was crucified. This was still the same Jesus, now resurrected. I I like what novelist John Updike writes. He says, make no mistake. If Jesus rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. In other words, the resurrection is crucial. Jesus didn't just swap bodies. No, his one and only body had become subjected to death. So when he rose, our arch enemy was totally and permanently defeated once and for all. Well, verse 41 tells us, but while they still did not believe for joy and marvel. This is kind of a strange verse. They still did not believe for joy. <laughs> Apparently the fear was gone, but they, they, still, they still didn't believe. I mean, it was like this is just too, too much to even comprehend at this time. You know, they're, they're pinching themselves and they're sort of laughing and they're standing there and they're sort of giddy. I mean, are we really seeing what we're seeing? You know, that was kind of the feeling. And so Jesus is going to offer them further proof. He said to them, have you any food here? And I sort of picture Jesus chuckling with them at this point. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Ghosts don't eat fish and honey. They're starting to digest the truth now. Jesus is eating the food. This must be a real body he's in. And they, and they begin to uh, realize the implications. And then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with, still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, verse 44 is an important proof text. It reveals what Jesus considered to be the inspired canon of Scripture. He lists the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. What's important here is what he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the Apocrypha. He doesn't mention the other Jewish writings that were floating around at the time. I mean, how do we know what truly constitutes God's inspired Old Testament revelation? Well, Jesus gives us that information right here. He tells us what the inspired books were. They were the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. First five books of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms are the poetical books. This is the same collection that was accepted by the Jews of his day, and it corresponds with the very same 39 books that we have in our Old Testament today. And so we know that Jesus put his stamp of approval on the books that are in our Bible. And from those books, he says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures and another Bible study to stir up their faith. What do do people who are struggling to have faith, what do they need? They need a Bible study. They need the Word of God. Jesus gives two. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I love this Greek word that's translated here, witnesses. It means part of the evidence. 
In other words, your life and my life should be exhibit A, that Jesus is risen. If a lawyer was trying to prove that Jesus is alive, could he point to our lives as evidence? Are we full of joy? Have changes occurred in our lives that can only be explained by a living Savior? Are we walking in his resurrection power? Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What a promise Jesus makes. Now, I'm going to take you back in time. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses chose 70 men to help him oversee the affairs of Israel to settle the people's disputes. But before they began their ministry, Moses called these men outside the camp. And God took some of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was on Moses, and placed him on these 70 sidekicks. And when the Holy Spirit came upon these men, we're told they spoke in prophecies, in these ecstatic utterances. It was divine communication. Two of the men, though, never made it outside of the camp. They were still right there among the people when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they prophesied. This obviously exposed the power of God to the rest of the camp. And Joshua got upset about it. He didn't think this was right. These were holy happenings, and they should be reserved only, by, only for those people who were chosen for the tasks. He wanted Moses to tell these guys to shut up and, and not expose this holy work for the common people. But Moses had an opposite desire. In Numbers 11, verse 29, Moses prayed, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. In other words, Moses longed for the day when all God's people, not just a select few, were endued with power from on high, who had the power of the Holy Spirit. And Moses' wish became God's promise. The promise of the Father is what Jesus calls it. It was repeated throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour my spirit on your descendants. Ezekiel 39, verse 29, For I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This is what Jesus called the promise of the Father. You know, it must have been a Calvary Chapel pastor who said, Promises are like crying babies in the sanctuary. They should be carried out immediately. But there are some promises that take time, that, that take a while to come of age. There are some promises that take a while to mature, and this is one of them. The Father had promised for over a thousand years to bless His people with the spiritual power, with power from on high, the power of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus tells his disciples that the fulfillment of this promise is now days away. He wants them to go back and wait in Jerusalem. There he promises that they will be endued or literally clothed with this supernatural power. And, and guys, this is the dynamic that is available to us today. 
This is the power that can break the chains of sin. This is the power that can shoo away our fears. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit produces boundless love and incredible boldness. It is the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit that turns wimps into witnesses, that turns legalists into lovers. R.A. Torrey was once asked if he had received the second blessing. In other words, not just saved, that's the first blessing, but filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, the second blessing. Torrey responded, yes, and I've received the third blessing and the fourth and the fifth and a hundred besides, and I'm looking for a new blessing every day. Hey, God wants to continually to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Whenever we ask, He's willing to pour out His power upon us and give us the boldness that we need, the love that we need. God wants to clothe you with a power greater than your own, the divine dynamo. The promise of the Father is now ours through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and He lifted up His hands and blessed them. Now, Bethany was east of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, sloping down toward the Jordan River. You remember Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all from Bethany. Now, it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now, what a moment this was. I mean, like the folks at Cape Canaveral standing there watching a NASA liftoff. Jesus starts rising from the ground into the clouds. He's soaring into the heavens like a runaway balloon with helium. You know, I've often wondered why we don't hear more sermons on the ascension of Jesus. Anybody ever heard a sermon on the ascension of Jesus? Not many of them are preached. We preach about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but rarely do you hear a sermon on the ascension. And I think that's tragic because the ascension was a very, very important event. I love what author Philip Yancey writes about the ascension of Jesus. He says, when Jesus returned after death to vaporize all doubts among the remnant of believers, he tarried a mere 40 days before vanishing for good. The time between resurrection and ascension was an interlude, nothing more. If Easter Sunday was the most exciting day of the disciples' lives, for Jesus, it was probably the day of ascension. He, the Creator, who had descended so far and given up so much, was now heading home. Like a victorious soldier returning across the ocean from a long and bloody war, like a successful astronaut shedding his spacesuit to gulp in the familiar atmosphere of earth, home at last. Jesus was finally going home. Jesus' ascension was his last lap down the home stretch. The ascension was a monumental event. It was proof that the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. That's why he ushers him back into his presence. That the Father has now equipped Jesus and qualified Jesus for a new job. He's now to be our high priest. In a sense, when he ascended to heaven, he was stepping up. He was assuming a new post, and he's still on the job today. He's praying for you. He's pulling for you to finish your journey well. And the disciples who were with him, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy 
And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. I bet they were. I love what uh, Augustine prayed. He said, you ascended before our eyes, and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. How wonderful. The disciples knew now that Jesus would always be with them. He would be in their hearts. And notice the book of Luke ends the way it begins, in the temple. It begins with an aged priest named Zacharias receiving the promise of the Messiah. It ends with that promise fulfilled and the world alive again with a fresh start. And God's people once again in the temple waiting now on another promise, the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes the theme of 2 Luke. Luke writes a sequel. We call it the book of Acts. And that's where we'll begin next week. Father, thank you for your word, for your love for us. Help us to meditate on these things as we go back home. Keep us safe, Lord, in our journeys. And Lord, help us to constantly rejoice and live our lives with a full awareness of the risen Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.